Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Jonathan Rausch, author of the book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. John, welcome to New Books Network. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. And we're glad to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I am about to turn 61 years old, a native of your own Phoenix, Arizona. Went back east to college, stayed because I didn't have the talent to be a musician, but was a good writer. I became a journalist, was trained at a newspaper, small paper in North Carolina, and then a magazine in Washington in the 1980s. In 1989, when I was 28 years old, the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran announced a death sentence against a writer named Salman Rushdie. And I was so appalled at the weakness of the defense of free speech, not just as a matter of law, but in our culture that was going on. And the number of people that said, well, you know, Rushdie did write a novel that could be offensive and isn't that a form of hate and a form of violence, that I gave up my job and wrote a book called Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought which was my effort to explain how we get knowledge, where it comes from, and why beyond free speech arguments, why you actually need criticism and sometimes hurtful criticism if you want to live in a society that has knowledge and peace as well as freedom. So that introduced me to the world of, get ready, multisyllabic word, epistemology, social epistemology, which is a question of how we as a society, not just as individuals in our private lives, but how do we as a society subtle disagreements about what's good information, what's fact, what's fiction, what's conspiracy theory. Societies are deeply divided by that. Most of them do a terrible job, but we happen to have stumbled on a very good way to do it. I call it the constitution of knowledge. And when a bunch of stuff started happening, which we can talk about in the last three three or four years, I realized I, I needed to update the book. I needed to bring it into the age of the internet, the age of Trump, cancel culture, trolls, all of that stuff big new challenges. That's one of the things I find I found fascinating when I read your book, which is that you're know, hearing you describe it as a, uh, a an elaboration of something you wrote back in the 1990s is, is a little surprising because so much of what you're talking about is very much grounded in uh, the present, in the immediate past. You describe a process that you know goes back into the, the 17th and 18th centuries, but you're it's very much engaged with events that are very fresh in a lot of people's memory. Uh, I was wondering if you could perhaps, though, start us off by telling us what you mean specifically by the constitution of knowledge, because it's a concept that that uh, you uh, talk about quite a bit in the book, and, and, and I imagine you'll be referencing quite a bit uh, in our conversation. Well, I'd love to. It's the foundational concept of the book. It's one of two or three big ideas in the book that I think are new and that I think actually have a, a shot of lasting over the generations. Every human society, every tribe, every group has some kind of social order, some kind of method for coming to agreement on stuff. Because you have to agree on some things um, in order to survive as, as a tribe. Sometimes they're practical things like, is this a good spot to camp? But sometimes, in fact, very often they're abstract things like, so which God do we pray to? And it's very important to get the answers right to these things. Well, the traditional epistemic regime way to decide what's knowledge as a, you know, what, what we say publicly is knowledge, what we act on as a group is knowledge, 
The traditional way is um, a cult with a priest or a sacred text or a sacred oracle or an authority figure, a leader, um, a prince, a dictator who says, this is what we believe and you better follow me or else. And usually those societies don't go very well. They tend to be very ignorant because they're really bad at finding their mistakes. They tend to be oppressive because they rely on fidelity to the leader, the tribe, um, the oracle. You can't really have dissent. And they fall into civil war over time, almost invariably. The sects splinter, they go to war, they divide. This is a really bad way of doing it. And it's pretty much how it was done until more or less the 17th century. And then we came up with something very, very different. Uh, My book is about where it came from, what it is, how does this constitution get founded? And it's a different system for figuring out what's true and what's not true. We create this big social network of people who are in principle interchangeable. Anybody can observe anything. Anyone can criticize anything. We subject our ideas to this network of, of critics We have to persuade them that we're right. We can't use force. We can't just impose it on them. In that sense, it's very much like the US Constitution, which says if you want to make law, you're going to have to compromise with people who have other points of view, and there's no other way to do it. You can't take over the government and banish the other side. So we set up this system, and lo and behold, it becomes a huge global network of people looking for each other's errors 24-7. It grows at a phenomenal rate, and it delivers something that no other system in human history has been able to do. In fact, it transforms us as a species, literally, because it gives us human knowledge as we know it, objective knowledge, all of that stuff in libraries. If every human died off today, a million years from now, an alien species could discover our archives and reconstitute that knowledge and put it to work. And you don't have to take my word for it. That happens on Star Trek original series. Season three, episode six, that's how they cured Dr. McCoy of his fatal disease, alien archives on a robot spaceship from a dead civilization. But all levity aside, I was vaccinated, got my second dose yesterday. How do we come up with a vaccine for a new virus, literally over a weekend, have it distributed under a year? Objective knowledge. And the constitution of knowledge is the social system that makes that possible and the only social system that makes that possible. So the book is about that, how it was founded, what the rules are, and then who are the people um, and forces that are attacking it, trying to dismantle it and undermine it. What you describe is a a system that has never been free of attacks. You you, you reference events in the 17th and 18th centuries, but what you talk about in terms of what's happened recently, you refer to as, as, as an epistemic crisis. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon this and and how what's happening today is different in a lot of ways from what happened, say, even 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, it's it's always different. Something I try to emphasize whenever I talk about this is that uh, there's always attacks on what I call liberal science. That's all of us or the reality-based community. That's that's all of the people and institutions that are committed to the constitution of knowledge because it's really hard to keep those rules. You have to trust strangers to make judgments about whether you're right or wrong. And you have to be willing to lose arguments. You have to put up with very unpleasant criticism. Uh, even your sacred beliefs 
are going to be put up to criticism. You're not allowed to end any debate. You're not really allowed to exclude anyone from any debate. But if you want to teach something in a college course, you have to put your ideas through this long process of validation by lots of people who are very different, some of whom are going to be very critical. None of that is any fun. It is just way easier and more fun to say, I believe what I believe. I'm right. You're wrong. Get off the planet. So um, there's always these challenges. It's important to recognize that they come not only from outside ourselves, but inside ourselves. Because as humans, we were not built to have this gigantic external constitution of knowledge, this huge hive-like mind that spans the whole globe, You know, billions of minds interacting over this network. That's not who we're supposed to be. So we rebel against that. We say, keep your hands off my truth. Um, so there's always these challenges. They take constantly shifting forms. You can never let down your guard. The book is about the latest forms. But I tell people, you know, just realize you're going to have to get up and explain the constitution of knowledge and freedom of speech every morning to your kids and then your grandkids and their, their grandkids will have to explain it. And then their grandkids will have to explain it forever. And that's okay. We just have to be cheerful about that because we're actually doing pretty well. One of the things I found especially fascinating in your book was the conundrum that we have here, which is you, on the one hand, you, you talk about how uh, the digital revolution has really uh, done so much to uh, you know, improve, uh, refine the constitution of knowledge. And yet at the same time, you also describe in, in sometimes harrowing detail the uh, degree to which that, that same digital network is you know, fueling this uh, epistemic crisis that you described. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about how that networked revolution has uh, changed things for better and for worse uh, in terms of the constitution of knowledge. Yeah, sure. It's a big topic. Obviously, there's a, a whole chapter of the, the book about it and how to deal with it, what went, what went wrong, what could still go right. But I'll, I'll try to give the short version. We can we can drill down wherever you're interested. So we have this. I'm going to go step back to a kind of higher altitude to answer that question and give a little context, which is if you ask people today where knowledge comes from in our society, they're probably going to say the marketplace of ideas. That's what Barack Obama, for example, said in November 2020 when he when he told The Atlantic that he was worried about the epistemic crisis, he said it undermines the marketplace of ideas. And the notion here is that if we just all have at it, if we all float our ideas, and if we're all free to do that, then truth will somehow win out in the marketplace. It's as though these propositions and ideas went out to some disembodied battlefield and joust it, and the strongest one wins. But undergraduates will say, well, how do we know that the best idea is always going to win? I mean, what would make you think that would be the case? And it's actually a very strong challenge. So it turns out, here's the what I think is sort of the one of the two or three main contributions to the book. The person to look at in thinking this through is James Madison, the father of the US Constitution. So Madison comes along and says the Declaration of Independence was not enough. It unleashed chaos, actually, under the Articles of Confederation because it didn't have enough structure, enough rules, enough institutions to get people to behave themselves in a pro-social way. So he designs this all these institutions, this constitution and the institutions and branches of government that flow from it, which channel our behavior in pro-social directions. So for example, in order to settle conflicts, we have to compromise whether we want to or not. That provides dynamism because it, prov it 
brings in new ideas and new coalitions, but it also provides stability because we have to set down, set down and negotiate. So it turns out the constitution of knowledge, everything from hard science to law, intelligence, mainstream journalism, does the same thing. It says the only way you can make knowledge is to persuade a lot of people with very different points of view, uh, regardless of who they are. No one gets special privileges. You know, you can earn credentials, but you can't just be special because of who you are. Well, so we this is so successful for so long that we take it for granted and we say, well, it's all about freedom. All you have to do is have free speech and the rest will follow. Knowledge will come from that. Turns out that's wrong. Uh, we, we always knew that was wrong. Sociologists of science knew that there's a lot of settings, a lot of structure. Institutions, you have to get right. You have to force people to be accountable to each other for their mistakes. You have to have reputational risk. You have to have scientific societies and universities and newsrooms and editors and fact checkers and peer review, all kinds of stuff like that, or, or it won't work. Then along comes, finally getting to your question, apologies for the long answer, along comes the internet. And our first reaction because of the marketplace of ideas is, yippee, this is great. Now everyone can talk to each other. The marketplace of ideas will work even better and we'll have even more knowledge and more civility and more good conversation and more social peace. So here's the problem. The internet was not structured to have structured conversations that compare and contrast ideas, put them into conflict, bring in experts to an expertise to try to figure out which are better ones, test them methodically use methods that are impersonal instead of just insulting. Um, it doesn't have any of that. All it does is put people on these platforms and it incentivizes advertising. These platforms were built for advertising to get attention because the more someone clicks on someone on something, the more money that something makes. So this is not a system optimized for knowledge. It turns out it's a system optimized for outrage, for posturing, what the psychologist Jonathan Haidt calls display. Display is not a form of communication. It's when I show the world how virtuous I am by siding with my friends to, uh, to shame you. And you very quickly have what always happens when you have these completely unstructured situations. It descends into chaos, into nihilism, um, bad behavior. And it's actually, I, I argue in the book, that it's currently structured. Digital media are not just, they're not neutral to truth. They're actually hostile to truth because disinformation and outrage travel through the system so much faster because they get more attention. People click on them. So that's a huge disappointment of digital media, social media. The good news is that there are a lot of great minds focused on how to fix that, how to improve that situation. And I think it will improve. You talk in your uh, chapter about digital media, about how we've seen the rise, not just of the, the, the fact checker to a new level of prominence, but you've seen an entire fact checking industry emerge. That, that, that's a product of this. You have a, a fact checkers association now, which is something you didn't have until just a few years ago. And, and it, it does underscore the degree to which it is a very different environment than was the case, say, in the 60s or 70s or 80s. Yeah. But so here's the thing, Mark, this disruption that we're seeing now, digital media, it's a new kind of thing in its particulars. It's not a new kind of thing in generalities. We saw massive social upheavals when the printing press was invented. Unfortunately, in that case, it took over 100 years and massive warfare and, and millions of lives lost across Europe to figure out how to tame and channel that technology. 
in the 19th century in America, we saw the rise of the penny press and massive, uh, massive printing by newspapers, which suddenly were able to distribute fake news and extremely partisan news in an unprecedented way. Um, people argue that actually brought about yellow journalism, brought about the Spanish-American War. Early in the 20th century, though, we start building institutions. The American Society of Newspaper Editors begins promulgating ethics codes, thinking through what journalists should and shouldn't do. Journalism schools begin to open in major universities and training those things. And actually, within a couple generations, we have mainstream media, which on the whole does an extremely responsible job in the post-war era. So the answer to this thing is you build in institutions that help channel us toward our better selves. And we're starting to see that happen. Facebook has a new oversight board. People poo-poo it. They say it's self-interested. It won't make any difference. I don't think that's true. Actually, this is a board that's going to start setting standards for what should be, um, what should be promoted and demoted on social media. It's going to start trying to do that in a coherent way. Other places may start to buy into it if it's successful. We'll start seeing the formation of these institutions and norms that can guide digital media toward knowledge. And another one is the one you mentioned, uh, the International Fact-Checking Association. Fact-checking is a fairly new thing. It starts in the 2000s. Before then, journalists weren't supposed to say what was true or false. They just quoted everybody. Turns out that's incredibly easy to exploit. Um, Politicians figure out that if no one's saying if it's true or false, that they can just make up stuff. And on the one hand, truth. On the other hand, falsehood. Journalists realized that that wasn't going to work. So they start setting up fact-checking. First a few, you know, two, three. Trump comes along. Disinformation becomes weaponized across Europe, lots of countries. And they realize, okay, we need a network of lots of places that are doing this work. Um, going through the, the stories every day, the quotes every day, and checking them in a way that's transparent and reliable. Sure, it's going to be controversial. But then once they've, they're over, like, I think they're almost at 200 now, maybe 300. I, I lose track of these fact checkers. Then they realize, well, we need a network so we're not all duplicating each other's work. And so that we can begin to maybe automate some of this process. If something is found fa- to be false, we can put it out on the network right at the beginning so that everyone around the world can see it's false. And they're starting to build these networks these truth-based networks online. So these are just two examples of lots of stuff that's going on. Twitter is working on changes to its platform. Now, if you if you try to retweet a link without reading it, when I try to do that, I get a pop-up now that says, it looks like you haven't read this link. Are you sure you want to retweet it? That's a way of slowing us down and making us think. And that's what science and law and journalism do. Are you sure that's true? Think about it. So we're starting... Little by little, we're starting, I think, to get a handle on this. At least that's my hope. One of the things you do in the book uh, that I found very illuminating was you treat this, you're you're talking about that this isn't necessarily a single problem that the Constitution of Knowledge is facing, that it's facing problems from a variety of different uh, areas, and that these problems are distinctly different. And the most uh, uh, prominent one, perhaps, is the problem of disinformation. And here you uh, have a chapter, you talk about uh, trolls, how you have the uh, rise of the, the uh, fire hose of falsehoods, and, and how uh, this has become a, a real challenge to the Constitution of Knowledge. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon uh, what you described in that chapter in terms of how that process emerged 
and 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 how uh, these mechanisms are are, are seeking to uh, address it or, or counter it. I'll start that. I hope the I hope the longish answers are okay. Um, right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to again start that by going up to a, a higher altitude for just a minute. You remember I said earlier that the adversaries of the constitutional knowledge are not just other people outside of us, they're within us. So what did I mean by that? Humans are not wired to find abstract truth. Our minds evolved for a very different environment where it was very important to know whether there's a tiger in the bush or just a breeze or where the next tribe is camped. You have to get stuff like that right. But on abstract questions, our priority is to stay on good terms with our tribe so that we don't get thrown out in the cold and die. And that means we're always looking to harmonize our beliefs with the people around us. And we're also uh, wired so that it's agreeable to confirm our biases, the things we want to believe. We actually unconsciously, cognitively, we look, we're more aware of, more receptive to information that confirms our biases than that denies our biases. And it turns out there are dozens of these cognitive biases that are wired into us, very hard to overcome. Stuff like availability bias. It's harder for us to um, to agree with, to, to accept, to, to listen to and accept information delivered, say, in a foreign accent. It's easy for us to assimilate information that we hear repeated, whether it's true or false. So we're just full of these cognitive flaws. We're riddled with them. The great advantage of outsourcing objective truth to a social network the reality-based community, is it pits biases against bias. We use each other to find our biases. Nothing else will do that. But here's the thing, as I said earlier, that is definitely not fun. We're not really wired to behave that way. And we've got all these cognitive flaws. So along come some very smart and clever people. You can call this propagandist. You can call them information warriors. Um, in the Soviet Union, it was called active measures. You can call it trolling. There are all kinds of varieties, but they say, wait a minute, people have these cognitive vulnerabilities. They've always been there, but now we have these powerful new tools to exploit them. We can get online and troll people by insulting them. They will rise to the bait and they will repeat all those insults. We can thus dominate the conversation in a way that we never could in the way when you had people like you know newspaper editors standing in your way. So they can take over your mind by occupying it. Donald Trump did that, and he acknowledged he did that. He was called the greatest troll ever uh, before he became president and the greatest troll online. And his response to that is, I consider that a high compliment. He understood what he was doing. You couldn't get him out of your head because he was constantly triggering the outrage button, and we can't stay away from that. So that's one cognitive vulnerability. Another is conspiracy theories. We look for patterns. We want easy explanations, whether they do or don't exist. The reality-based community makes it very hard to get an explanation accepted. You have to pass all kinds of tests, and you're going to have to come up with some data and evidence. Um, but we found out after the election that conspiracy theorists don't like that. They don't like courts to sit around and sift through the evidence and render judgment. Social media also gives them a wonderful outlet. And then finally, you get disinformation, weaponized disinformation. This you mentioned is what researchers at the Rand Corporation have called the fire hose of falsehood. This is a tactic. It goes back a long time, but it was especially developed by the Russians. 
and is developed by the Russians. And this is the notion, you don't have to censor people that you don't want to be heard. You can drown them out with a tsunami, a fire hose of false and misleading information, sometimes with half-truths sprinkled in, so that people will just become disoriented and confused about what you believe. So if you throw out enough different, often inconsistent garbage, what Steve Bannon, a Trump advisor, called flooding the zone with shit, you can just swamp the system that we rely on to distinguish truth from falsehood. You can make people cynical and untrusting. They throw up their hands. They say, I don't know who's right anymore. I don't really know who won the 20 election. We never will know because I'm hearing all this stuff from all these people. That opens the door to division and demagoguery um, and demoralization. And that is the goal of information warfare, to divide society, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to demoralize it. Now, this, though, as I mentioned earlier, is just one of the uh, challenges you address. And I thought it was very fascinating about how uh, you describe you know, the, the consequences of this, the, the, how it, it exacerbates polarization, sort of feeds upon itself, but also how you know, the you know, institutions it, it, you know, in the Constitution of Knowledge are pushed back. But you also have a, another uh, challenge in the form of cancel culture. And you spend a, a chapter describing that. What? How is the the challenge of cancel culture different? And how does it pose a? Uh, what sort of threat does it does that pose to the constitution of knowledge? Well, I'm going to revert to what seems to be my pattern in this conversation, and again, <laughs> go up to a few thousand feet in, in altitude to answer that question. So the tactics that are used by cancelers, and I'll come in a minute to explaining what I mean by that, are very, very different from the tactics that are used by trolls and propagandists. At least superficially, they're different. But message number two of my book, I say there's, there's three big messages. One is, it's not a marketplace of ideas, it's a constitution of knowledge. We talked about that. The second is, you're being manipulated. And you need to understand that and know how to deal with it. And the reason I say that is that trolling, for example, or the fire hose of falsehood, or canceling are both forms of information warfare, both forms of propaganda, meaning they don't come from the world of rational criticism where you're comparing ideas to try to figure out which one is the best in some organized social way. Instead, what you're trying to do is organize and manipulate the social and media environment for political gain. Say that again, because it's so important. You're trying to organize and manipulate the social and political environment the social and, and media environment for, for political gain. So the trolls and the cancelers are both doing that. They're using different tactics. So, okay, what do we mean by canceling? Um, it's a new term. It's kind of a voguish term. The, the term that I, I was using, which I think might maybe be more accurate, is coercive conformity. So remember, we talked earlier about human beings are wired to harmonize our beliefs and even our perceptions with people in our group. One age-old way of manipulating our perceptions and our beliefs is to make it appear as if everyone agrees with some point of view. And if you don't agree with it, you're the odd person out and there's something wrong with you. Experiments, classic psychology experiments actually show if you put eight people in a room you tell them they're getting a vision test and you ask them which of three lines matches the same length as another line and you make it blindingly obvious 
one line matches, the other two aren't even close. But seven of the people in that, in that room are confederates of the experimenter and they all give the same wrong answer. They say it's line B, which is obviously wrong when it's really line C. On a third of the trials, even when it's that obvious, staring you in the face, a third of the trials, people will conform what they say to the group. So what counselors have figured out is if you can intimidate people using social coercion, maybe getting someone fired, getting them publicly shamed, demolishing their reputation, then you threaten to demolish the reputation of anyone who comes to their defense, you can create what sociologists call a spiral of silence. That's where I'm afraid to say what I really think because everyone else isn't saying what they really think. I fear that I'm isolated, I'm alone. Uh, the majority view actually can be suppressed. This is what anti-vaxxers did. They made it look like they also use internet tools like bots and automation to make it look like uh, there's just this huge group. There's lots of scientists who think vaccination is dangerous. Well, they weren't, but they were able to use techniques like manipulations online and counselors are able to use techniques like stifling dissent socially in order to spoof consensus. And that intimidates people not only from saying what they really think, but even believing what they would otherwise believe because they want to try to align their beliefs with others. And so we see this on places like college campuses where two thirds of students now say that they're, um, they're afraid to say what they really think on political issues for fear of how other people will react. It makes it look like there's huge numbers of, uh, of, of sort of radicals who say radical things and will silence you. In fact, they're a minority on campus, but they've succeeded in, um, in silencing and intimidating the majority. We also see this in the culture now in various ways. And my message, Mark, is that this is sophisticated information warfare. We shouldn't just think of this as people behaving badly or uncivilly. These are tactics that go back to Goebbels, they go back to Lenin. We need to take them seriously, understand we're being manipulated and that's what cancel canceling is doing. So you have these challenges that you've described and you provide examples. You also describe how you're starting to see the institutions uh, in the constitution of knowledge uh, pushing back. But in your final chapter, you talk a bit about what we as individuals could do to, uh, uh, to address these problems, these challenges. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon how uh, individuals, you know, listeners, uh, people, ordinary citizens under the Constitution, how they can respond to these challenges and, and, and the threat that they pose. Yeah, I'd love to. Before I do, I want to issue a caveat, which is that in individuals need the support of institutions. It's very hard when you have a spiral of silence going on, whether it's because the authorities are using overt coercion, like in Russia today, or whether they're using canceling methods where they use shaming, they get you fired from your job. It's very important that you not feel alone because if you're alone, you're an easy target. And the last thing you want to do is, is, is get in trouble. So it's super important to counter mobilize and counter organize. And we're starting to see that happen. And we can talk about that. That said, individuals pushing back is critical. Spirals of silence can break very quickly, surprisingly quickly. If you have a dissident, someone like uh, Andrei Sakharov, for example, or for that matter, um, Andrei Navalny in Russia like now, who refused to be silenced. And in the right circumstances, other people will rally to them and begin creating a movement. And that terrifies 
these regimes. That's why they work so hard to use these tactics of coercion to keep people, keep people quiet. So although individuals do need support, they also need to understand you have great power as an individual just by not shutting up. Well, what do I mean by that? So I go to college campuses and talk about free speech a lot. And the question that I've, I've been getting the most often for the past, you know, since basically 2013, when the latest wave of antagonism to, to free speech on campus really emerged, you know, it would usually be from a, fresh, a freshman or a sophomore, often male, often white, but not always. Um, gay people, I'm gay, have come to me and complained and said, I'm, I'm not being tolerated by the LGBT group on campus because I'm center left instead of far left, all kinds of things. And they would ask this question. They'd say, what do I do when someone is telling me I can't participate in this conversation, whether it's because of my privilege or my perspective or just because I'm offensive? How do I counter that? I tried a lot of answers and none of them really worked until I hit upon the one that is right, which is it doesn't matter what you say to them. It matters that you say to them. It matters that you not let yourself be silenced because in those conversations, in that same room with the people who are trying to shut you down, there are other people who are quiet, but they are listening and they are observing what is happening. And if you hold your ground and make your case, you will be surprised other people will come to you. Other minds will be changed. And the power of these people who you think can destroy you, it's much less great than you think. Um, it seems great, but I spent the 1995 to, to basically 20 years as an advocate for same-sex marriage. It seemed like a completely hopeless cause. At the beginning, it seemed worse than hopeless. It seemed ridiculous. And what we learned from that is if you stick with it and if you don't shut up and you make your best case and you respond to their attempts to silence you with, with good, calm arguments, that third person in the room, they come around little by little. They see who's being reasonable in that room. So that's a super important thing individuals can do. Another is avoid truthiness, which is one of these temptations that I talked about earlier. Truthiness is to say, well, what I'm saying now online or in conversation or on paper, it's not exactly true. It's not literally true, but stuff like it is true. Like, um, you know, there was a book years ago and Rigoberto Menchu got, a, I think, like a Nobel Prize for literature or for, for some field for writing in a, a memoir. It turned out the memoir was made up, basically. And a lot of people said, well, it's not literally true, but it still speaks for a kind of truth. Well, that's what comedian Colbert calls truthiness. It's not actually true, but we want it to be true. And it, hit, it gestures towards something we think is true. Well, we can't be doing that. The constitution of knowledge requires first and foremost, no, if we say it's true, it has to actually be true. It has to be checked out. It has to be the real thing. We can't compromise on that or we lose our credibility. And that's what I'm afraid is happening in academia right now. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? <laughs> I'm working on getting this book out. I, uh, <laughs> it's actually only been a few weeks since I, since I sent it off to the publisher. So I'm in that process that many of your, your listeners who publish books are aware of where it's, it's too late to change the book. And now I've got to promote it and figure out how to talk about it. So I'm, one reason I'm happy to do this podcast is there's a lot of very complicated ideas in this book, really interesting ideas, core ideas that go to the basis of who we are as human beings, how we know what we know, how we perceive the world. Um, 
and I'm still trying to figure out how to talk talk about them in a way that's coherent and crisp and, and brings it home to people. So that's my big project right now. I haven't figured out what my next book or big project will be. I have some ideas, but you know, like a lot of people who write for a living, I'm not I'm not ready to share them. Okay. Well, I hope that when you uh, do settle on an idea and turn to a book, that uh, we can have you back on the show. Anytime. I love the conversation. Thank you. Uh, John, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. 